Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Jackson Hole Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is After Obama, and it was recorded on August 18th, 2015. Thank you very much uh, for that kind introduction. I'm going to spend about 25, 30 minutes, and we'll have it open for questions about the world after Obama. I have to be very careful because about three weeks ago, the president said, if I were to run for a third term, I would obviously win. <laughs> the only problem would be the Constitution. So I, I think there will be a period called after Obama, but I'm not sure yet. Um, but by that term, that vague generic term, what I mean is, A, the immediate political calculus in this upcoming election, B, what the Obama legacy will, will mean for his successor and what will be the state, C, of the United States in the, um, the ensuing post-Obama years. Before we talk about the candidates just for 10 minutes, remember there's four or five things going on that I think massage the entire race. The first is that Obama is not popular. Um, Today in the real clear politics, like every day, basically for the last two years, he's about four to five points um, in the negative category according to the aggregate polls. It's about where George Bush, believe it or not, was right now with 16 months left on his term. Bush, of course, went down a little bit further. And that's not good for a president. Harry Truman faced the same dilemma, and when Adlai Stevenson ran in 52, he was as critical of Truman as Eisenhower, same thing with LBJ that had similar ratings that Humphrey ran away from LBJ. And you remember what happened to John McCain 2008 where he seemed to be as tacking Bush as much as Obama did at times. So that's going to be a problem because any candidate who says I want to continue the Obama legacy, A, does not lack, uh, does not have the residence and the skills that Obama does, but he does have the record, which is not popular. The, the second thing to remember is and I'm not trying to be too partisan, partisan, but not too partisan, is that nobody in uh, the last 20 years has done more to damage the Democratic Party than Barack Obama. And during his tenure, we've seen about 14 Senate seats change. We've seen about 70 House seats change. About 62% of all the state legislatures and about 60% of the governors are all Republican. There's still a Republican majority of sorts in the Supreme Court. Should Obama be followed by a Republican president, it will be one of the few times in our lives, I'm going to be 62 next month, that there will be a chance for real change. That's prim primarily due to Barack Obama. He did far more damage to the Democratic Party than even Jimmy Carter did uh, earlier, or even that Richard Nixon did to the Republican Party. So you've got to keep that in mind. The third thing is that he had this strange political calculus that said uh, America is no longer 85% so-called white. I don't know what these terms mean in an interracial and, and integrated society as our own. I'm speaking to someone whose two brothers are married to Mexican-American women, my nephews, but nevertheless, we cling to these old apartheid rubrics that are absolute white, absolute Latino, but he came up with the idea that as a Democratic candidate, I only need about uh, 43 to 45% of the so-called white vote. Usually it was about 48 if you were a Democratic candidate, because unlike Ronald Reagan, who had 85% of a white constituency voting, 
uh, there's only 70%. But what Obama didn't realize, and what the Democrats didn't realize, is that the rhetoric necessary to frame that argument, the white privilege, you didn't earn that, has turned off a record number of white Democrats of the working class. And the key in this election will be to what degree will the uh, charisma among Obama that got extraordinary turnout ratios among Latinos and blacks, and then you know, whoever thought blacks or any group would vote 95%, for, is that transferable? Because what we know that is transferable is the suspicion of Democratic candidates by the so-called white vote, which is still 70%. And I think that you're going to see after this left-wing Democratic primary a move to the center because people are starting to say, you know what, if blacks vote for, say, Hillary Clinton at 90%, or Latinos vote at 65%, that's not going to make up for the number of whites if we only get 40%, which is what they're looking at, unless they do something quickly. And finally, another irony is that in 2008, uh, after the stunning victory by Barack Obama, people said, well, this is the new face of America. Get with it, Republicans. You're no longer white, you're no longer age, you're no longer male. This is the new Obama. And you look at the candidates today, you see Bobby Jindal, young, non-white. You see Ted Cruz, Carly Fiorina. You see um, Marco Rubio. You see Ben Carson. And then you look at over at the Democratic field. You see soon-to-be 69-year-old, 68-year-old uh, Hillary Clinton, the only woman in the field. You see 73-year-old uh, socialist Bernie Sanders, white male. You see maybe in the wing 72-year-old, I'm not, I'm 62 so I feel I can do this, age passing. 72-year-old uh, John Kerry in the wing, 67-year-old old white guy Al Gore, and maybe 72-year-old old white guy Joe Biden. So this is the whitest, oldest, most male feel that we've seen in recent political history by a party that promises that they were all through. I don't know how they're going to square that circle they'll manage somehow, but it's going to be embarrassing. If you look at the actual candidates, each party has a, a, a burden. In the case of the Republicans, it's called Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is a catharsis, fancy Greek word for saying that people were so frustrated that they look at government and they cannot stop this 20, soon to be $20 billion debt. They see that there's no such thing as an immigration law the Kate Steinle thing that happened in San Francisco, for example. They look at the Middle East and they think, what's happened? They look at Putin. Uh, they look at zero interest rates and a family that has $100,000 a year gets no money for their retirement. And they say, how can this be? And they elect certain people and they're not going to be rational and say, hey, we don't have a Republican president. Mitch McConnell and John Boehner can only do so much, especially with the president who likes executive orders and tramples the Constitution. They don't want to think that way. They're just angry. They want the China shop destroyed, and they don't care what kind of bull is necessary to do it for now. And this terrifies people because the establishment, every time they write the obituary of Donald Trump, they're wrong. And they're wrong because he, as every classic demagogue, and he's, he's, a, he's a brilliant showman, he speaks and talks better than all the other candidates, and he takes an element of truth and he magnifies it in such a way that uh, is, is absolutely brilliant. So they, he makes fun of John McCain in a very terrible fashion. I thought it was very bad. And everybody said he's done with, and his popularity soars. Why? Because people were kind of tired of John McCain 
always referencing his military record. He, in a very misogynist fashion, attacks Megyn Kelly. They said, that's it, nobody can ever do it. His popularity rise, why? Because deep down in all of your dark hearts, you know there's something that bothers you about uh, Fox News that says that you have to have a short skirt and blonde hair to make it. And if you ever say that that's true, you're sexist. That's, that's wrong. And so Trump looks at the, and he says, you know, we gotta take people back. And they say, that would be chaos with immigration. Well, it's no more chaotic than having 12 million people here who are not citizens and just decided to walk across the border and say that if you call me an illegal alien, you're a racist. That's an absurd situation. You can demagogue it, but it's absurd. It's an absurd situation that I've been hit three times in Fresno County by an unlicensed, unregistered, and uninsured driver who fled the scene. I think that's absurd. I think it's absurd that you're going to send everybody back to Mexico. But the point is, he takes an absurdity and he exaggerates it to very stunning political effects. The Republicans have, uh, if, you've, if they have some great candidates, I, I particularly prefer people like Kasich, Walker, Bush is good, Rubio, for your, they're all good candidates. The problem is they have three commandments. They cannot nominate, I think, Donald Trump and win. They cannot win if they alienate Donald Trump and his supporters, and they cannot win if he runs a third-party candidate. The locus classicus is not Donald Trump doing to George H.W. Bush, not the same thing as Ross Perot did to him uh, in 1992. It's what he did in 1996. People forget that Bill Clinton still didn't get 49, only got 49% of the vote. And Trump, uh, Perot got 9%. Had that gone to uh, good old Bob Dole, he might have won. So it's a danger, and they've got to follow that. And the Democratic side, I've more or less summed it up, they've got a problem. They've got a woman who has a 30% chance of being indicted, and I say not just on the merits of the case, although you can make the argument that it's an indictable offense in the sense that it's, you can argue about David Petraeus or Sandy Berger, but there's a problem there that won't go away and that she doesn't want to handle it in a transparent fashion but she has a very ambiguous relationship with the Obama administration, and they have a long record of using the Justice Department for political purposes. So that's a sort of Damocles that's hanging over her head, and the alternative, as I said, is a 73-year-old socialist. He has the same crowds that George McGovern had. I remember being a student at UC Santa Cruz, and people said to me, have you seen George McGovern? He's got 20,000 people in San Francisco. He's gonna sweep the country. Sort of like what pa Pauline Kael said, I don't know how Nixon won. I never met anybody who voted for him. So <laughs> the point is that he's probably not going to win. I don't think he's going to be nominated, but the people that are the alternatives to those two, whether it's Kerry or Gore or Biden, are not impressive characters. Americans, to quote George Patton, don't like a loser. They never have. They've all run for president or for the nomination and lost. And now they feel that it's my white privileged old male turn to come in again. I don't think it's going to work, according to the ramifications of their own ideology. So that's where we are politically. It's going to be the most interesting political contest of our lives. We say that every four years, but I think this time it might be. Uh, 24 million people watching that. And when Trump took credit for it, narcissistic to the T, and he was absolutely right. Nobody would have watched it to that degree if he had not been on the stage. It's like blood sport. You go to an auto race to see somebody crack up. You go to a Republican 
um, debate to see what Trump will do or what somebody will do to him. It's great sport and it has to end sometime, but not yet. People are not, the catharsis is not done yet. It's gonna be another, I think, two or three months at least. As far as the um, Obama legacy, there's four or five things that are gonna be a challenge for the next president. The first, of course, is uh, Obamacare. Most of the things that were said about it, keep your doctor, premiums won't go up, co-pays won't go up, lower the deficit per se, turned out not to be true. And then we're hearing all sorts of financial problems, costs are going up. I had an accident last year and I've been to various specialists about 20 times in, in Fresno County and here's the exact scenario that I am witnessing at the orthopedic surgeon, the dental implant surgeon, the neurologist. A patient comes in, usually impoverished, and is told that their Obamacare policy does not work because they did not pay premiums after the first two months. They are flabbergasted that you have to do that. They said they've never done it. Then they are told that there's such a thing as a deductible. They've never paid a deductible. And then they're told there's such a thing as a copay. They thought Obamacare was free. And the noncompliance is staggering. That is, people who are going, who were impoverished, who you went to the emergency room or went to federal clinics, don't understand or they haven't been told that you do have to participate in a way. Maybe that's good if you're conservative, maybe it's bad, but the system is not functioning, at least in the cost-saving prognosis we were told. The next president, if he's a conservative, I think, or she is, is going to have to address Obamacare. It's going to be very difficult because once you extend an entitlement, even a bad entitlement, it's going to be, the rhetoric will be very difficult to bring it in back into the private sector. Same thing about immigration. Um, it's very radical to uh, de facto grant amnesty is what the president has done. I think all of you agree on what, what we could do. It's a little bit of Trump. It's a little bit of the other Republican candidates. It's nothing of Obama. Remember he said 20 times he could not by executive fiat change the immigration law. Then he did precisely that after the third election, two Tea Party elections, his re-election. That's where we are. I think everybody understands that you have to enforce the border, you have to enforce visas that are overstayed, you probably have to have an e-verify system for employers, and you have to uh, go through the pool, I don't think it's 11 million, I, I wrote a book in 2001 about it, and the statistics said it was 11 million, it's probably more like 15, and you have to realize that uh, you're not gonna be deporting everybody, but among that group, even people on the left say about 14% have a felony record. That's an incredible number of people. Over a million people should go back to Mexico after abusing the hospitality of their host. The others, I think, should be granted if they have not gone on public assistance and they have not committed a serious misdemeanor or felony and they've been here, say, longer than three years, they should be given a, a, a pathway to legal residence. Once a person's a legal resident, it's not our business what they want to do, but not an amnesty. If they want to get citizenship, that's their business down the road, but I don't think that we should offer citizenship de facto as amnesty. Uh, finally, remember that all of the rhetoric is on the Republican side against the Republicans, but the extremist position is usually on the left. Because what I just outlined, most Republican candidates could accept, even Trump after he gets over his raggedaccio, but most people on the left would not accept. They want sanctuary cities. They don't want to deport anybody. And they think, they use these terms nativist, racist, 
exclusionists. And the fact is, if this was not primary a Latino or South Central American policy, nobody in the Hispanic community would, would worry about this. If we had 3,000 people from China getting freighters and coming into San Francisco Bay, the Latino community, as I know, would be outraged and say, why don't we enforce the border? It's an ethnic issue. Anybody who says that it's not is being disingenuous. It's been very successful with anchor babies and relative so-called humanitarian policies that, of turning states purple, whether Nevada, New Mexico, maybe Texas soon, and it's a strategy of the Republican Party. I'll just finish on the issue by saying La Raza, Hillary just spoke to the National Council La Raza. Where did that word come from? As a Latin scholar, I can tell you it means Roddick's race. Where did it come in the modern parlance? Well, it wasn't really used until Benito Mussolini created a manifesto de la raza. And then, of course, Francisco Franco wrote a novel called Raza. And the theme of both was that if you live in a country and you are a citizen and you speak that language, it's not enough. You have to have an ethnic essence like the German concept of woke. In other words, it's a racist concept that is barred from popular use today in both Italy and Spain. And yet we allow that term to exist where we go out and say that illegal alien is proof of your racism. So it's an absurd situation the next president's going to have to deal with. It's not going to be easy. Foreign policy, I don't want to say too much about the economy because we have two wonderful speakers, General Mattis and Eddie Lazier, who are going to school you on that in a way that I could not, other than to say that with the Iran deal, with Vladimir Putin, with the Chinese expansionism, the with a mess of the Middle East, whatever the idea was, lead from behind, uh, the post-war order was somehow inordinately unfair to the 99% other than the United States and the West. I don't know what the rationale was. Maybe it was therapeutic. The more that we reach out to people who don't like us, we'll win through acts of love and charisma, their goodwill, but it didn't work. And we're gonna go back to a tragic view of the world that says that people who are autocratic and aggressive treat magnanimity with contempt and they respect uh, people who stand up for their own interests. And that's gonna be very difficult because history shows that when you have a correction, a correction like Ronald Reagan after Jimmy Carter or the Churchill government or even the latter Chamberlain government, then people's, uh, it's a very dangerous time. The next president comes in and tries to tell Vladimir Putin to cool it or the Chinese to be careful about how they bully our former allies or things in the Middle East or with Iran, they're going to be seen as extremists. When Ronald Reagan came in, remember the first year was movies on TV that he wanted World War III. And basically he was trying to say we don't have to cave to the Soviets. And yet it's going to be a very dangerous time. The restoration of deterrence historically is always more perilous than the acquisition, which is long and, and hard to acquire, and once you have deterrence, it can be thrown away very easily, and it's very dangerous to try to restore it. And that's going to be a challenge for the next president as well. Financially, as I said, a couple of things. Um, we're going to end up with $20 billion and in, in $20 trillion, excuse me, in national debt. We're servicing that debt at probably no more than the Clinton administration served seven or eight because of interest rates. It's all predicated on zero interest rates. Um, I talked to a farmer not long ago who sold his property a couple of, oh, 10 years ago and he cashed out for a million dollars. And he said to me, oh, to be a state employee. And I said, what? And he said, well, my son is gonna retire at 60,000 with a PERS pension. 
how many million in the bank would I have to have to get that? Because he was getting 1% on his passbook, and he said, I don't know anything about the stock market. Real estate frightens me. But this idea that zero interest rate was a good idea, I don't think is true. It's changed the savings habit of America. It's artificially inflated a boom and bust cycle that were there anyway in real estate and uh, the stock market, and it's been terrible to the middle and upper middle class retirement. And when I talk to a teacher or I talk to a business person, they're working in their 70s because they feel they cannot retire on a simple 5% return on their passbook. That's going to change as well. Finally, I painted a pretty bleak picture of the next president's challenges to, to address foreign policy, illegal immigration, the economy. There's also this problem of racial relations. 60% in the latest New York Times poll said that racial relations had gotten worse. For the first time in these polls, the white population, who usually is sunny and upbeat, said to be naive, everything's going great, they polled that they were more pessimistic than the black population. And I think it's something we're really going to have to address. You can pick up any major newspaper online, and you can go through the coded, politically correct description of a black-on-white crime, or something like Ferguson, and you think, this is very political correct. It's not transparent. It's not telling us the race of the perpetrator or, or the, the, the tragedy of the victim. And then you look at the comments, the uncensored, free, freely posted con comments, and they are as racist as anything out of the old Confederacy. I mean, I can't believe they published them. So you see what's happening. We're getting two strains where America is moving across by race. I mean, when if we had Donald Trump, and he said some pretty provocative things, but so far he hasn't said, I'm worried about Kate Steinle because she looks like the daughter I wouldn't have had. You don't say that. And yet with Obama, we're just assumed that he is going to interfere in ongoing criminal cases on spectacular uh, racial fault lines, whether it's Ferguson or Trayvon or Baltimore or Skip Gates breaking into his own home in a way that's going to polarize people. So. Uh, you didn't build that, the 1%, the corporate jet owner, the fat cat, punish your enemies. After a while, none, none of those editorialisms at any one point are dangerous, but after six years, they're in the aggregate. They have polarized the country in a way that I haven't seen it in my entire life. It's, it's very dangerous. The next president's really going to have to address that. Finally, is there, let's be clear, though, there's not complete pessimism. One of the reasons that this economy is still there when the policies have been deleterious, to, the, to say the least, is that it's America. So despite, not because of Obama, we're now going to be, I think in two years, if we're not already, the largest gas and oil producer in the world. Nobody in their right mind would have thought that in 2003. And that is doing all sorts of things to the American profile overseas. It's making us less susceptible to blackmail in the Middle East. It's creating natural gas as an energy source that for all the green hysteria, people realize it is not a polluting fuel to the same degree as coal is. And it's allowing people to have cheaper energy. It's helping our uh, balance of payment. It's a shot in the arm. And it's really helping the economy along despite our efforts. And it's going to get better. If we had a Republican president or conservative that came in and built Keystone or allowed us to export natural gas, it would have enormous strategic benefits in the Middle East, but also with Europe vis-a-vis -vis its dependency uh, on Russia. So that's going to only get better. It's a financial 
and foreign policy um, bonanza for the United States. It came despite this administration, but will benefit the next administration. The second thing is, for all the talk about your, um, the Constitution, and I'm very worried about the President's exercise of authority. You can argue whether the Iran deal should have been a formal treaty requiring two-thirds approval from the Senate. I think it should. But others on the other side of the, of the discussion say it isn't. But one thing that it would not be allowable is to say if the Senate and the House vote against this and they were in some way able to sustain a presidential veto and then Obama, as some of his advisors have said this week, that he would implement the deal anyway uh, by executive order, that would be very dangerous in the way that amnesty by fiat is dangerous. But that said, we still have a constitutional system and the question is not whether we're absolutely uh, pure in our constitutional fealty, it's compared to what else? Russia is a mess. China cannot square the circle of capitalism and autocracy. I don't need to say anything about Africa or Mexico or, or Central America. Look at Europe. The whole European idea is fraught with complete contradictions. They're existential in nature when you look at Greece and what's going on with the EU and the problem with Germany, et cetera, and now with immigration. Only the United States has a constitutional system that can withstand somebody who really doesn't have much respect for it, like Barack Obama. So that's another plus along with energy. Third thing is, while the world uh, damns the United States, we're still as unpopular under Obama as we were under George Bush, they love to come to the United States, as you know. And lately, the Times Educational Supplement, along with the uh, two Japanese universities, rated the great universities of the world in the top 10, seven of them were American. The British study somehow put not just Oxford and Cambridge, but the University of London there. And what was stunning about it was not just that uh, Stanford was in the Japanese was number one and Caltech was number one in the English, but there was Caltech, Stanford, Berkeley, UCLA, and USC. In the top 15, five of them were in California. Uh, in some ways a failed state, more than any other single country. And what was stunning is not just the top 15 were all American, but the next 40 places like University of Wisconsin, University of Texas, University of Michigan. So we have an educational system that the world by admission considers the only educational system. So along with um, oil and our constitutional system, there's two other things that I think speak that are going to help the next president despite this Bailfield legacy of the next six years. One is demography. Even without immigration, at least until recent recession, we were growing about 1.8 to 1.9. You know, to quote, paraphrase Heraclitus, demography is destiny. China is facing a terrible demographic crisis. Russia, maybe even worse. Greece used to be, when I lived in Greece, it was about 2.2, it's about 1.4 now. Europe is shrinking. It's going to have 60 million less people. The United States, even without immigration, uh, is far more fertile, at least it was until the last three or four years, but it will be again because there's different ideas of childhood in the state, I think, in America than elsewhere, and it's going to be far healthier. We're going to have a far younger population, not than we should, but compared to the alternative. And finally, I want to finish with the U.S. military. If this administration is serious about what it says it's going to do, it may be 25% smaller than when it began. We may go down to a historical low of 
that's going to be very dangerous. As I said, the loss of deterrence is going to be very dangerous for the next president, but it's not final. It can be rectified. And why can it be rectified? Because the U.S. military really is a meritocratic system. It's, it's excellent. It's, we've got the, uh, a very strange ability as a postmodern Western country where most of the emphasis historically and contemporarily in Europe is on consumption, luxury, the lifestyle, living with your parents till you're 40, having a half a child maybe at most, abortion rates higher than fertility rates. In that dismal, dismal climate, there's something about the history and the exceptionalism in the United States that allows it to create wonderful armed services and high technology, and it's still preeminent. And even though we've gutted it, and it's no longer, I think, able to meet the strategic objectives that have been outlined for it, the core is still there. And as in the Vietnam period, it can be rebuilt. And I think it will be. So I want to end on a happy note, although I was, the rest of it was rather pessimistic. <laughs> and at that, I'll uh, be happy to entertain any questions. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.